Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, Hey there, boys and ghouls. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. Ron and Anne couldn't quite make it tonight. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's get the show on the road. From Great Britain, a land of ghosts, folklore, myth, and mystery. A country with a haunted heritage, literally like no other. From Arthurian legend to talismans of luck, creepy castles and haunted houses, headless drummers to evil jesters, apparitions of white ladies, grey ladies, black ladies, and green. Cowboys, spectral ones, clubbed highwaymen, and phantom carriages drawn by spectral steeds. What lurks in our land is certainly not for the faint-hearted. Today, join me this morning on the Great British Ghost Tour, which is your guide to the anomalous across Great Britain. And you can visit the website if you like at greatbritishghosttour.co.uk, or you can stay in this room if you dare this morning. As I take you on a unique journey. <clears throat> now, choosing the most haunted castles in Great Britain is a phantasmic feat in itself. The Castellarium Anglicanum, which is an authoritative index of castles, uh, just compiled uh, back in 1983, lists the number of castles in Great Britain. They put that as about 1,500 castles in England, 600 in Wales, and aside from that, there was about 2,000 in Scotland. Now, many of these have vanished and left little trace. But there are still plenty to visit today. So if you decide to take that trip across the pond, you will have lots to choose from. But as for those that are haunted, well, many apparently are. And here is your guide to the ten most haunted castles in Great Britain. <laughs> So, at number 10 is Tintagel Castle in Cornwall, England. Now, according to English heritage, during the Dark Ages, Tintagel Castle was an important stronghold and probably a residence of the rulers of Cornwall. Now, Richard, Earl of Cornwall, built the castle here in the 1230s. And they suggest, though, that the site was of no military value. Legend alone seems to have inspired them to build it. 
And as you make the long, steep climb up the steps of a castle, it makes you feel that you're really becoming closely entwined with the realm that is shrouded in Arthurian legend. Now, Gorlois, the king of Cornwall, sent his wife, Figun, from Dimelo to Tintagel to save her from the lustful of the Pendragon. However, Merlin allowed Pendragon to appear as Gorlois to seduce the poor woman, and it's from that that Arthur was conceived. <coughs> Local folklore claims that once a year, the castle is set to disappear, only to reappear in its former glory. And those fortunate enough to behold the spectacle, for that short time, then, then witness it return to its ruinous state. Is it a case of a time slip, or an apparition on the grandest of scales? Others have picked up on strange atmosphere. Some claim that their dogs behave strangely when they walked around. But as for ghosts, it is King Arthur's shade that haunts the dark, crumbling ruins that you see here. But if you were to look elsewhere, none of that than the ghost of Merlin himself is said to lurk in the cave right there below the very castle. It truly is a stunning spectacle of the coast of England. So, on to number nine. At number nine is Bolsover Castle, which lies at the centre of England. Now this castle was designed to impress by William Peveril. He was one of William the Conqueror's knights. The Bolsover Castle, found in the 11th century, commands spectacular views over the county of Derbyshire. That's why it's called the Jewel of Derbyshire. It's under the care of English heritage and is open for you, the public, to visit. Although it was neglected from the 14th century, its ruins provided the setting for the Little Castle, which was begun as far back as 1612 by Sir Charles Cavendish. It was a retreat from its principal seat a few miles away, and some say that the castle is home to many shades from its past, and the ghost of a little boy is seen next to this fountain. Some visitors have reported spectral sounds and smells of horses coming from these stables, and others claim to have been slapped. Lights turn on and off. A spectral carriage is pulled down this very pathway up to the peak that you see here, and a grey lady is seen walking through the grounds, and footsteps heard walking across this terrace. And Sir Charles Cavendish himself is said to wander the corridors where the smell of perfume and pipe smoke have been reported. However, the most well-known story associated with the castle, and is also its most pitiful, is the apparition of a young woman, reported in the kitchens here. She's described as carrying a bundle under her arm, and being of a tearful disposition. She makes her way towards these ovens, throws in the bundle that she was holding, upon which the screams of an infant have been heard. A truly upsetting experience for those unfortunate enough to witness it. So, at number eight, 
standing on its position at Castle Rock at the head of the old town. Edinburgh Castle dominates the skyline of Scotland's capital city. Now there's been a royal castle on the rock since at least the 12th century and as well as the most important strongholds in Scotland it's been involved in lots of conflicts. About 26 sieges which gives it claim to being one of the most besieged castles in Great Britain and one of the most attacked in the world. It's also claimed to be one of the most haunted castles in Britain. Now the headless drummer, first seen shortly before Oliver Cromwell attacked the castle in 1650, has been reported on these very battlements. Although the sound of his drums have been heard coming from here, his physical appearance is rare, and when it does, is said to foretell danger for the castle. French prisoners from the Seven Years' War and those pesky colonial prisoners from the American Revolutionary War are said to haunt these dark, dank dungeons and the very rooms in which they spent in cramped conditions. The ghost of the dog has been witnessed here in the pet cemetery and not to be left out. Spectral cats are found elsewhere in the castle as well, but they don't mix. <laughs> Other reported phenomena at that castle include sudden and unexplained temperature drops, disembodied voices, footsteps, and an unseen entity that tugs at clothes and hair. The most famous story is that of a phantom drummer, sorry, piper, and the castle has a number of secret tunnels which run underneath to the royal mine. And when these tunnels were first discovered, they sent a piper down to explore it and play the pipes as he went. They were doing that so he could track his progress, but these suddenly stopped. They never found him again, he never came out. No sounds occasionally heard down the royal line. Don't be too frightened of them. <laughs> So you will be there. <laughs> okay, on to number seven. Now this is Dunster Castle, which lies in the English county of Somerset. It's a former Mott and Bailey Castle, which is now a country house, and it lies on the top of a steep hill called the Tor. It's been fortified since the late Anglo-Saxon period, but after the Norman conquest of England in the 11th century, a guy called William de Mone constructed a timber castle on the site as he tried to pacify the county of Somerset. At the end of the 14th century, the de Mohans sold the castle to the Luttrell family, and they continued to occupy the property until the late 20th century. And in the 1970s, they sold it to the National Trust and most of its contents to be a tourist attraction. And it's now open to the public for you to visit today. Now the castle is reputedly haunted by the apparition of an old lady in 17th century costume. And if you're looking for her, we're going to go in and see if we can find her. Now she wanders these corridors. She's described as silent and harmless, but interestingly appears when thunder is said to be imminent. At the gatehouse here, a roundhead soldier has been witnessed standing in the nether room where he turns and walks through a closed door. 
But is the woman in 17th century clothing the same as the other woman seen on this staircase? We don't know. The sounds of many clinking on nights of a full moon have also been reported, which some have connected with the Dimoan family who owned it because they used to make their own money at Dunster Castle. There are more ghosts to be found. For instance, a man in green allegedly haunts the castle shop, which is located in this stable shop or block. A mysterious green light has been reported here. Staff and visitors also report the building as a rather uncomfortable and even menacing atmosphere, and sometimes stock tends to drop and fall off shelves. I'm trying to keep my wife out of that shop is fun. <laughs> <laughs> my poor wallet. <laughs> now, onto one of my personal favourites, and I know I'm being biased here, but at number six is Cardiff Castle. The Cardiff Castle, in Welsh, Castell Caerdydd, is a medieval castle and Victorian Gothic revival mansion situated at the heart of my capital city of Wales, which is Cardiff. It be passed into the hands of the Marquesses of Butte in the 18th century, and John Stuart, the first Marquess, employed the renowned Capability Brown and Henry Holland to renovate the main range, turning it into a Georgian mansion that you see here. When he died in 1947, the castle was given to the city of Cardiff, and today it's run as a tourist attraction. But this original Bath and Bailey castle that you see was built in the 11th century by Norman invaders and now affords a wonderful view over the capital of Wales. Cardiff Castle is reputedly haunted by quite a few ghosts. An old-fashioned coach and fork comes from the gate that you've just seen and drives right up this driveway, up to the castle, and it's reportedly been heard indoors. Some claim that it's a portent of death for a member of the Pete family. Although they no longer live there, they reside at their home in Scotland. It's not just the grounds, though, that are haunted. As you enter this imposing building, something shadowy has been experienced in this entrance hall. As you move elsewhere into the dining room, the sounds of doors opening and closing have been heard. Sudden temperature drops. A female wraith has been sighted in the far end of the castle corridor here. And also lights switch on and off. As you move into the library, the second Marcus of Butte that you see here, he's been sighted, incidentally, in this library. He had a great interest in the supernatural. It's also been a phantom cat walking in between the bookshelves. The final phantom is that of a grey lady. She's been seen in the castle and outside. And this grey lady, seen outside the castle, turns and waves at the towers before disappearing. And nobody knows quite who she is. This castle is located in Ravenglass, Cumbria. It is believed to stand on Roman remains and has been the home to the Pennington family since 1208. It is reputed to be one of the most haunted castles in England. Five ghosts were reputedly born to Lancaster Castle. These include Henry VI, an apprentice carpenter, a jester, a vengeful ghost in white, and that of a lion. Henry VI was sheltered at Lancaster following his defeat at the Battle of Hexham and is now said to frequent the castle. 
An apprentice carpenter was decapitated while sleeping in the old stable block. The crime was committed by a jester named Tom Skelton, nicknamed Tom the Fool. There were even accounts that a lion, shot by the last Lord Lancaster in Kenya, who then kept its skull in the castle, was sometimes heard prowling and growling in the darkness around the castle. The ghost of Skelton has also been reported. His portrait hangs in the castle and it contains his will. Witnesses have reported hearing footsteps approaching where his portrait hangs. The ghost of Mary Bragg frequents the paths in Gatehouse. Bragg, a foul-mouthed local girl, was murdered by being hanged from the main gatehouse by drunken youths in the 19th century. Those responsible were never brought to justice. <coughs> the castle of proudly hoarded heritage can hold ghost tours and events. You can visit www.lancastercastle.co.uk to discover more. So, on to number four. Glam's Castle is the home to the Earl and Countess of Strathmore and Kinghorn, home of the Lyon family since the 14th century, although the present building dates from the 17th. The Glam's was the inspiration for Shakespeare's Macbeth and the childhood home of Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother, wife of King George VI. The castle is a protected building and is open just seasonally to the public. So if you are going to visit this one, you need to check in advance when it's open. The castle reputedly very, very haunted, with at least eight ghosts associated with it. These include an apparition in the crypt, the ghost of a butler that hung himself, a knight in a suit of armour, an indelible blood stain on one of the floors, and also the audible cursing and occasional wandering after dark of Earl Beardy, who gambled away his soul to the devil. Another is that of a little boy, a page boy, who had been misbehaving and was sent to sit on one of the seats in the corridors. And they forgot about him, and he froze to death overnight. And he's been known to play child's tricks. Here in the chapel, a great lady is seen kneeling. This is said to be Janet Douglas, who was burned at the stake in July 1537 on a charge of witchcraft. She's also been sighted in the clock tower and glides through the corridors. Out in the grounds, a servant girl is sighted. She was accused of being rather too friendly towards one of the earls of Glam's, so the guards took her tongue out with iron tongs and threw it on the fire. And finally, there's the legend of the monster of Glam's. Some believe it to have been a vampire. Certainly something terrible enough to have it locked up and sealed in a room. And behind the castle, if you're there, you can actually see a window that is bricked up. Is that where the monster is kept? Unfortunately, when I was there to the filming, they all let the film inside, which oh. is a real shame. Hmm. Now, number three. We're leaving Scotland and heading down into England, where we're going to Windsor Castle, the original Bottom Bailey of which was built in the 11th century after the Norman invasion of England by William the Conqueror. And since the time of Henry I, it has been used by the reigning monarch as the longest occupied palace in Europe. The original wooden structure replaced with stone fortifications 
which Henry III had built, was a luxurious palace, and it still is. And with such a long history, it's hardly surprising that Windsor Castle lay claims to host of several ghosts. Perhaps this is why Queen Victoria herself conducted seances there. The ghosts are naturally said to be of a royal connection. Elizabeth I, dressed all in black, walks this very library and the castle walls. Charles I appears in the canon's house in the castle precincts. George III has been witnessed in one of the rooms where he spent the remainder of his life in debilitating madness and peers from a window. Henry VIII has been sighted in the corridors and sounds of a dragging leg of a lame man have been heard, which they say was him. The deanery is reportedly haunted by a young boy who shouts, I don't want to go riding today. And his footsteps are said to be heard in that building. The prison room in the Norman Tower is haunted, possibly by a former royalist prisoner from the Civil War. Children playing there have seen him, and adults of Felton brush past them. And the kitchen of one of the buildings is said to be haunted by a man leading the horse outside, and that of a young girl. Now, in 1906, a group of men were sighted by a duty sentry who shot and charged at the group with his fixed bayonet. And the enemy for the group suddenly vanished. So, number two, known as the key to England, the magnificent fortress of Dover Castle has played a crucial role in the defence of our realm for over nine centuries, a span equaled only by the Tower of London and Windsor Castle. It was founded in the 11th century. Dover Castle is a scheduled monument and English heritage now only can take care of it as well as the secret tunnels surrounding the surrounding land make it a major tourist attraction. And views from the White Cliffs and from the Channel are absolutely breathtaking. The castle is reputedly one of the most haunted in Great Britain. I've placed it at number two. Doors open and close with their own in various parts of the castle. Temperature drops reported and apparitions include that of a headless drummer boy murdered during the Napoleonic Wars whilst carrying out an errand involving a large amount of money. He now wanders the area of the battlements. Now this keep, which was built around 1181, is the haunt of a woman in red. Her identity is unknown. Is she responsible for the sounds of screaming that come from these very battlements? Just outside, on this ground here, a cavalier has been sighted. But now moving towards the secret tunnels. A militia soldier and World War II phantoms have been reported in the underground tunnels. Audible phenomena that include screams, cries, whispering voices have been reported. And a visiting American couple a few years ago heard sounds and actually complimented the staff on the realistic sound effects. <laughs> Only to be told they don't have them. <laughs> so we've counted down from 
10 to number 2. But at number 1. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is a special dedication for Jeff. Oh. <laughs> I just did this now for Jeff. Time out, Kim. So, at number 1. Type oh my god, that was a guess. <laughs> I read there, that's why I guessed it. It goes to the Tower of London. Founded at the end of 1066 as part of that Norman conquest of England, William the Conqueror built the White Tower, which gives the entire castle its name. The castle had been a grand palace, a royal residence, and was used as a prison from 1100 until 1952, although that was not its main purpose. Today, it's one of the country's most popular tourist attractions and protected as a World Heritage Site. Lots and lots of ghosts. <laughs> These include a group of men carrying a headless body outside the entrance here at the Tower of London. A cloaked figure lurks here on the outer wall. And King Henry VI said to haunt the Wakefield Tower. Now two children have been witnessed dressed in nightgowns in the bloody tower, believed to be the lost princes of the tower connected to King Richard III. So too has the shade of Sir Walter Raleigh and that of a long-haired woman in a velvet dress seen on these battlements. A white lady haunts this, the white tower, as do the screams and agonising cries of those tortured within the walls. Now the most haunted area is said to be Tower Green, where you can see where the scaffold once stood. Many were executed here. The rates of Anne Boleyn, Lady Jane Grey, and Margaret Pole have been cited here. All were executed, but by far the most brutal death was to poor Margaret Pole. Aged over 70 years of age, and actually innocent of the charges, she fled from the executioner, who chased her around Tower Green, literally hacking her to death. The scene is said to be replayed on the anniversary of that event. And that is the most haunted castle in Great Thank you guys for having me uh, to Spirit Quest. It's great to be here. I've known Ron for so many years. And I'm going to talk about legends, particularly New England legends today, because this is where I live. And uh, it's, it's uh, the thing I love about a legend is that it's something that connects us with each other, but also with our past, uh, with our own inevitable future, because we're all products of where we live and who we interact with and everything else. And while I'm not here to debate so much the stuff behind the legend, like to say, well, yes, there's definitely ghosts or monsters or aliens or otherwise, I'm here to say that I do believe that there's always some sort of catalyst that occurs that, caught, that gives rise to these legends. The legend itself becomes something bigger than the original thing, right? There are living legends. Football fans, Tom Brady, right? The legend of Tom Brady serves him when he takes the field and the other team goes, oh God, that's Tom Brady, right? Well, that took years to develop and the story becomes bigger than the actual guy. So we're gonna kind of run through some of my uh, favorite stories that I've been looking into over the last year or so. And um, I think for a lot of us, these stories start when we're children. So I wanted to start with a, a story of Fingernail Freddy, which is uh, a place, uh, 
it's been around since about the 1950s, and there's a camp right near me in Cumberland, Rhode Island, called Camp Karana, and it's been around since 1937, and they've been telling this story since at least the 1950s. Fingernail Freddy is this reclusive guy that lives near the camp, and he's grown his hair long, and he, he's grown his fingernails long, he doesn't trim or clip anything, and he hates loud children more than anything. So it's rather unfortunate to live near a summer camp when one has those feelings. And the counselors tell the kids, year after year, every summer, be quiet when you go to bed at night, otherwise fingernail Freddy might be coming for you. And sure enough, sometimes at night, the kids are in their cabins and they're getting noisy and they'll hear scrapes along the outside of the cabin. And everyone gets a little bit nervous that fingernail Freddy is going to get them. And I guarantee you, some of those kids have heard the scrapes. Promise, year after year. There's a second story they'll tell you at Camp Karana, and this one's called Hotshot Charlie. Hotshot Charlie is also a recluse, and he lives out in the woods just north of the camp. Now, I've been there and I've been all through, and if you go just north of the camp, there's, there's old colonial walls and there's even some cellar holes out there. Hotshot Charlie, uh, his story also dates back to around the 50s and 60s that they've been telling this story. He also despised kids, but for a very different reason. Sometimes the campers would wander onto his property and then pull pranks. They'd let the animals out of the pen, uh, fling manure at his house, things like that. And he had enough. So Hotshot Charlie starts loading his rifle with rock salt. And he's shooting at the kids. Right? Doesn't want to kill them, just wants to get their attention. <laughs> These kinds of stories are all over the world, especially all over America. The idea of loading rock salts into a, a shotgun and shooting it at people, not to kill them, but to get their attention. Uh, it was featured in a show called The Rifleman, uh, you know, long ago. So this is, this is not a new idea. But things turned lethal for Hot Shot Charlie because the story goes that the kids were, were getting tired of getting pelted with the rock salt. It burns their skin. So one day when he was in the barn, they sneak up to his house and they set it on fire. And they didn't realize his wife and young child's daughter was in the house. And Hotshot Charlie comes out and he sees this house burning and he runs in to try to save his wife and daughter. But it's too late, they've already been consumed. And he gets horribly disfigured. And he, he stays out there the rest of his days, never goes into uh, town again. But this time he vows if any kids come near his property, no longer will there be rock salt in the rifle. This time, he's going to kill them. He's going to shoot you dead. He is going to murder the kids that come up to his property. And they've been telling these two stories since the 1950s, summer after summer after summer. And you say, okay, my skeptic friends are saying, like, well, this is a good way to keep kids, one, quiet at night when they shouldn't be making too much noise, and two, not wandering off the camp. Absolutely. And sometimes legends serve us in that way. But I kept thinking about these two legends, this horribly burned, disfigured guy that stays out in the woods, and this other fingernail Freddy, and I'm thinking, my God, I wonder, did, did Wes Craven go to Camp Karana <laughs> as a kid? Sometimes uh, legends are born from the damnedest things, the strangest fears and phobias that you've ever heard of. And I want to introduce you guys to uh, this guy, uh, Timothy Clark Smith, actually doctor, medical doctor Timothy Clark Smith. Uh, born in 1821, died in 1893, and this guy was a really accomplished guy. I'm going to show you a bit of his obituary. Um, uh, just to summarize, he went to college, which was a big deal. Uh, then he also served in the uh, Treasury Department of the U.S. government. Then he went to medical school, medical college in New York, 
became a medical doctor, went over to Russia to serve during the Crimean War as a, as a surgeon, came back, President Abraham Lincoln appointed him consul in Russia, so he became an international diplomat, had children over there, came back to central Vermont, and uh, bought a, uh, an inn, and, and brought some of his kids back here for their education, lived a long, incredibly accomplished life, amazing by today's standards, really amazing by, by that day's standards, and then he died. Dr. Smith, medical Dr. Smith, suffered from a very strange condition called taphophobia, and it's the fear of being buried alive. And Dr. Smith went to great lengths to make sure this would not happen to him, and I just became infatuated with this story this past summer. Number one, he wanted his coffin to be glass-lined, and this is him in his coffin, so he could see out and people could see in to make sure if he's moving in any way, they could get him out. In that coffin, he had with him uh, uh, a chisel and a hammer, should he wake up and need to get out. He also designed an incredibly elaborate tomb uh, here in Evergreen Cemetery in New Haven, Vermont, which is a teeny tiny town right in the, the middle of the state. His name isn't even on the, the grave anywhere. There's no, his name's nowhere. You have to know what you're looking for. And fortunately, I did. We go to the cemetery, and it's very much like a pretty New England cemetery, well taken care of, well manicured, but there's this like three-foot mound right around the front. The street's on this side, and, and there it is. There's the cement part, and there's this little square thing at the top. And this mound is really, this is where we're going to focus, because it's, it's weird. And the more I started looking into the story, the more I found that Dr. Smith wasn't alone in his taphophobia. In the 1800s, there were no less than 16 patents that I've found related to devices that will help you not be buried alive. For example, Franz Vester uh, had this, this spring-loaded coffin where there would be like a, a, a rope attached to your wrist. And if you happen to wiggle it in the coffin, it would pop the top open and whew, you'd be okay. <laughs> Unless you're buried under six feet of dirt, and then there's no way that spring-loaded coffin's going to do you a damn bit of good. Uh, but that's okay. Other patents included uh, the life detector, great name. And what that was is it was a tube with like a little horn at the top and a bell. The tube would run down to your wrist, and should you be alive, you just give it a little ding -a -ling, -a -ling, -a ling And if you hear the ding-a-ling-a-ling in the cemetery, you know, oh, goodness, Grab the shovels, we screwed up again. <laughs> and the funniest thing about this is that this is being marketed, has to be marketed directly to the consumer. In general, you one go when someone dies, when a loved one dies, you go to the undertaker who's gonna sell you a casket and, and a plot and headstones and all kinds of things. The undertaker is not they're not gonna sell you this. Because what's the message there? Like, in case I have no idea how to do my job, we've got this, right? So this would be someone saying, no, 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 I want, Uncle Larry wanted the, the thing. And, and I, was, I was pictured too, there's another one, uh, very similar to the bell, but it's a red flag that would literally launch up should you pull the string in your And imagine you're laying flowers in the Gertrude's right? Over there, you go. Oh shit! Excuse me. Uh, uh, Mr. Smith over here could use some help. I heard that this is the this is the Texas 
of the graveyard shift. <laughs> this is the what? Genesis. This, this, this is. No, listen again. There was no. somebody whose job it was to listen it's to this. It's a dead ringer. It's a dead ringer. Especially in New England, in colder climates, we have keeps where we would keep bodies before you could dig into the ground. Those keeps also had bells with springs hanging on the inside. That was not unusual. So this was a common fear uh, all throughout the 1800s. And then around 1900, this, this just coal industry just kind of goes away. And the reason for that is right around the 1860s, just about post-Civil War, they developed this, this process called embalming. And what embalming is, is they take the blood out of your body and they replace it with like ethanol and formaldehyde and this whole cocktail of chemicals. And so even like normal people like us understood, well, once all the blood's gone and you replace it with that, I'm just not alive, right? Like, I don't need to pull any strings, I'm gonna be done. But it was really expensive. 1860s, it was like 100 bucks, which is, that's big money in 1860 money. Uh, but the price came down and it became more in vogue to, to get embalmed, and so by 1900, uh, really, that whole industry sort of dried up, and people were embalmed, and that was the, the trend. But Dr. Smith's great. Back to that. So uh, the, the thing is, th this was how they got into the tomb, and that, that square thing at the top is actually a window. And it, in the 1940s, it made the paper, uh, Bristol Grave has a, a window in it. Dozens of people per summer were coming to this cemetery to look down the window, because Dr. Smith was buried down there in his glass-topped coffin with a, with a chisel and a hammer, uh, placed underneath a, a six-foot like chimney with a window where he could look up, and should he have to, he could chisel his way out and, and get out of this tomb uh, if he needed to. And so people look over and over, uh, and this is again like a 1941 newspaper article, uh, Superintendent Shackett is inclined to consider the reports of people saying that they see something down that window as imagination, I could never see anything but darkness, he asserts. Well, Superintendent, Superintendent Shackett, uh, I, have, I had something that he did. That was a 300 lumens flashlight that was like, <laughs> and an iPhone. He had neither of those, and I did. So we went up there to the grave, which has got water droplets underneath that window, which, uh, so, which means there's, first of all, there's air and, and moisture getting in there. And uh, because you can't put a camera over it with all the droplets, the little tiny iPhone camera I could lay flat on there, and I could move it between the droplets, and I could set that 300 lumen camera, and we could put our sweatshirts over our heads to light out the sun, and we could get a good old gander down there, and we took pictures. And there's a lot of moss growing in in various directions and so on. I'm guessing that last layer of moss there is probably about four feet down. Uh, and it's growing in this way, this way, this way. And sadly, uh, I don't think I could see Dr. Smith's face down there, but I do imagine with the 300 lumens blasted down, Smith was, for the first time in like a, over a century, was just like, what the hell is that? <laughs> They're finally coming to check on me. Uh, but, but this guy, this sort of this phobia, medical doctor, goes on to make him this legend that people still go to this cemetery to see it, because it's such a weird story, and we love that. We love connecting with the weird of the past. In New England, we're also very big on our curses. And this is the cursed grave of Mary C. Delancey, who died in 1985. And she's buried in Yarmouth Cemetery out on the Cape. So there's a, there's a fear of being cursed, and it's called uh, deprecophobia. And that's, that's being, you're, you're afraid of being cursed. And uh, Mary C. Delancey's grave is indeed cursed. 
And it's a very specific curse. And if you're looking at the grave, you're like, well, that looks like any headstone I've ever seen, right? It's nothing special, really. The special part is, is on the back, and it says, and I quote, May eternal damnation be upon those in Wailingport who, without knowing me, have maliciously vilified me. May the curse of God be upon them and theirs. Yeah. She meant it, right? So I looked up Mary C. Delency, and she was this woman, that uh, a poor lady who lived in this little house in this Wailingport community that grew up around her house. A developer started buying all the land and putting up mansions and said, hey, sell your house. We want you out. We're going to put in all mansions. And she said no. She refused. And uh, mansion after mansion kept popping up around her property. They offered her top dollar for her property. She continued to refuse. And she was a, a pretty bad neighbor. She owned a lot of cats. You go ahead and imagine whatever whatever you think that means, you're probably right. And so, uh, so her neighbors hated her. She hated her neighbors. It was a hate-hate relationship. And being a poor woman, she saved just enough money to put this headstone up when she got in it. And as soon as it went up, right, the Wailingport people were like, well, this, this won't stand, right? We can't have this. This is, this is preposterous. And, uh, but they, they wouldn't take it down. The cemetery people said, no, she paid for that. It's, it stays, and that's how it goes. And now, if you buy a house in Wailingport, if you've got the money to afford that, you've got to be told about the curse. <laughs> right? So you, you pull in with your car, and you, your tire runs over a nail. <clears throat> the, the car tire pops. It's the curse of Mary C. Delensky. <laughs> You're moving in, and you drop Grandma Gertrude's vase that she left you in the will. It's the curse of Mary C. Delensky. Anything that goes wrong. The thing about curses is the moment you believe in them, they are indisputably real. Right? We know that as Red Sox fans. <laughs> the only way to break a curse is with good pitching. That's the only way. So this one last middle finger stands up to the world all these years later, and we talk now that that Wellingport community is indeed cursed. In New England, we have a, a, a strange affinity for the devil, which is uh, unusual considering our puritanical roots. But the more you think about it, the more you realize Puritans need the devil. The devil is critical, right, to keep us uh, on our, our moral path, our moral, you know, keep our, our morality in check. And uh, there's a story I, I looked into in Maine uh, called The Devil's Footprint. There's a bunch all over New England, but this is one of my favorite stories because it's so specific. When you talk about some legends, it's just so general. But this one, we've got dates and places and so on. And it has to do during the construction of this building, the North Manchester Meeting House, which, was, which went up in 1793. While this building was being constructed, the story goes that uh, the workers are digging for the foundation. They're digging, digging, digging. And anyone who's ever put a shovel in the ground in New England knows our most abundant resource is rocks. We've got them everywhere. And they're digging. And they hit this big rock. And you know when you're, you're digging and you move over a little bit and it's still there, and you're like, oh, man. Yeah. Move over a little more. Ching, ching. Oh, geez, right? So they're digging, digging, and it doesn't wiggle, you know? And you're like, oh, it's not even wiggling. This sucks. This is going to be horrible. <laughs> so these workers all day long are trying to dig at this damn boulder, and finally, at the end of the day, one of them stands on top of it and says, I would sell my soul to the devil in order to move this rock. Well, they go home that night, and the next day they come back, 
and the rock's gone. It's been moved, and that worker's never been seen again. <laughs> and the rock is right nearby where the cemetery is today, and there's these two marks, this triangular one that they say is the devil's footprint, and this other one that they say is the man trying to run and get away and kind of sliding in it, and, and, and forever immortalized in the rock. The devil's footprint. You might notice it's red. That's not natural. That's been painted red. And you know who painted it? The devil. The, no. <laughs> and you were so close. It was the church. <laughs> because they want you to be able to find it easily. Because there's a moral to the story. Sell your soul to the devil, you'll get what you want, and at a price you may not want to pay. But being a New Englander, I picture that guy in hell looking up going, the rock was moved, I don't care if it was worth it. <laughs> I won the rock lost, period. End of story. There are devil's footprints all over. Uh, we were talking earlier, uh, some of us were talking, there was um, this one in Rhode Island. Um, and, and it all has to do with the thing about legends is we all need something tangible for things that we believe in. So if you're a religious person, just go in a church, mosque, synagogue, whatever, temple. It's not quite enough for some people. You need something tangible. A feeling, something you see. Some, some people see a rainbow and go, that's, that's God smiling at me. I get it. And that's okay. We all get our signs in, in different ways. And I think for, for a lot of us, uh, that's the thing about a legend, right? We've done these ghost hunts. I've been with some of you on, on these ghost investigations. And I know so badly we want to validate that thing we believe inside. And I've been on some where we're, we're doing these events, and all of a sudden, uh, someone will walk by like a curtain, you know, and just brush it, and the curtain starts swinging. And someone else will go, look, it's moving, a ghost. And you go, oh, no, no, so, someone just walked right by. They just said, no, they didn't, that's a ghost. And you go, well, shoot, we're at an impasse, aren't we? Right? I saw the person walk by and brush against it and cause a very natural airflow to move the curtain, and you are saying, I'm wrong, that is definitely a ghost because that's what you're here to see. That's the thing, right? We sometimes get into this total impasse because the thing we believe needs validation. And then we get into this whole thing. We can't have a discussion anymore. It just becomes a matter of my belief versus your belief. And I don't know if you guys live in America or have access to the news, but <laughs> it's happening on a bigger scale now, you know? Uh, where it's just like, no, I believe two plus two is seven, and I'm right, and you believe two plus two is 13, you're totally wrong. And at the end of the day, we, we, we're getting in like, we're getting these horrible conflicts. And again, to come back, that's one of the things I love about these stories, is that we can kind of put those conflicts aside and share them. We're living in a time when we're, a lot of our communication is being done electronically through texts, through tweets and Facebook posts and stuff like that. And it's, that's just so one way. It's, it's very different than when two people talk and share ideas and look into each other's eyes and see that I'm not coming from a place of hate or otherwise. I'm just I'm sharing these profound stories. And so I, I kind of feel like sharing these stories, exploring this weird stuff that we all explore, whether it's UFOs or lake monsters or ghosts or whatever. Like, 
maybe we can save the world, right? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, let's not fight about like politics and stuff. Let's fight about what happens after we die and if we're alone in the universe and that we, how much we don't know in the oceans and lakes and yeah, how much our soul weighs? Twenty-one grams, obviously. Right? I mean, that those are those are the things that I think humans have been asking for tens of thousands of years. These are the big questions. And I'm glad you guys are here at least asking them. And these stories, remember we played the telephone game when we were in you know, grammar school and we were in kindergarten, where uh, the teacher will tell you a sentence and then you whisper it to the next person and the next person and the next person, and it changes wildly as it passes through people. But there's always some nuggets in there that sometimes make it all the way through. So if I said, you know, the goat is on the mountain and he's waving to me from the top, and you pass it along and then it turns into like, you know, there's goat cheese pizza uh, at the mountaintop restaurant, right? <laughs> we all laugh and say, yeah, it changed wildly, but there's still a goat and there's a mountain and there's some pieces in there that, that made it all the way through, that people felt was important enough to the story to tell it. And the reason we look into this stuff is because we want to become part of the story. That's really what it's about. And our skeptic friends who uh, you know, will say things like, hey, there can't be a phantom hitchhiker on this stretch of road because I've looked there's no deaths reported. There's no accidents that led to any fatalities. Therefore, there's no fan hitchhiker. What could be, what could be bigger than that to say, like, I'm, I'm going to be the last chapter of the story, right? Even though the sightings continue. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful pursuit. And it's a pursuit for truth, even if that truth is relative to us. And speaking of that pursuit, I wanted to talk very briefly about the Fox Sisters of Hydesville, New York. March 31st, 1848, I've been preaching, and I don't preach much. I've been preaching for decades that everything we do in, in ghost and paranormal research was born that night uh, in, in Hydesville, New York. That that led to psychics, which led to psychical research, which led to paranormal investigation, which led to ghost hunting, which led to TV shows and, and ghost hunters and ghost adventures, and led to this conference today. All of it, you know, was born that day. I, I, I've said that for years and years. And this past summer, I did some research, and I realized I was wrong. Antichophobia okay. is the fear of being wrong. <laughs> I actually don't have that fear. I'm wrong all the time. I can live with that. Um, while I do stand by that, uh, that there was a major event that occurred that day, that it is a huge, huge milestone in all of that research, which led to Ouija boards and all kinds of other things, the seeds, there were seeds sown earlier than that. And this past summer, I went on a quest for America's first documented ghost site, first documented haunting. Uh, and it's an incredible story that I just got sucked into and I wanted to share it with you guys because I know some of you guys are ghost geeks like me. This is a story of uh, Nellie Butler who died June 13, 1797, but in 1799 she came back. And this is according to the testimony of a lot of people. The reason we know so much about the Nellie Butler haunting is because of a book published by uh, Reverend uh, Cummings, Reverend Abraham Cummings. And uh, it's a great title, it just really sings, right? Testimony of Sense, in which it's, it's contemplated the doctrine of specters and the existence of a particular specter addressed to the candor of the enlightened age. Yeah. It's no Harry Potter, but a good title, right? <laughs> and uh, so you have to ask, what is the reverence motivation in putting this together? 
and it's not a it's not a reader. You don't want to get this on an airplane and, and like it's not a page turner. Rather, it's a testimony of dozens of people who claim they saw the ghost of Nellie Butler, and some of them saw it together. And if if a ghost walked in the room right now, and we all saw it and all had this experience, and someone went around individually and interviewed us about our experiences, you would hope that those testimonies would sound very similar. They should. Oh, she was about being tall. You know, it should vary just a little bit. Uh, and so that's the case with this book, which is fascinating. Nellie Butler was seen for over a year, multiple times, by almost 200 witnesses. And uh, the Baptist minister, Reverend Cummings, he believed that this kind of validated his faith, validated what, what he's preaching from the pulpit. And so for him, this wasn't about, uh, this wasn't against the Bible or against God. This was something that proved it. And so the story goes that uh, it all has to do with this, the basement of the Blaisdell family. The Blaisdell family lived across town um, from the Butlers, and this is where Nellie Butler's ghost was experienced over and over. Sometimes it would just be knocks, sometimes it was hearing her voice, and sometimes it was full-on apparitions. People were coming down to the basement to see it. Night after night, week after week, so many people witnessed this thing. Some said that they would see her approach, and, and one woman had commented, she was, she was shorter than I remember Nellie being, and then claimed that the apparition actually grew to the height she remembered Nellie to be. And others said they put their hand right through her. I mean, the stories are absolutely incredible. And there's, again, testimony after testimony from different people who said that they saw uh, Nellie. And it all culminated, what she was looking to do, what the ghost of Nellie Butler wanted was her widowed husband, George, uh, George Butler, was trying to get George to marry uh, the Blaisdell's daughter, Lydia. George Butler's 29 years old. Lydia is 15. And even by that day's standards, 15's a little young. 18, 19, 20 was more common for marrying age for women. 15, it wasn't, it didn't, it's not like it never happened, but that's, that's pretty young. And Lydia wanted to, by the way. Lydia wanted to marry George Butler. And so uh, this whole thing became rather stressful. And at one point, according to this book, Lydia goes to stay with family down in York, Maine, and kind of get her head together. And then she comes back, and in May of 1800, 29-year-old George Butler marries 15-year-old Lydia, according to the wishes of the ghost of Nellie Butler. And this union comes together. And Nellie Butler's ghost is seen one more time, this time in, the, in August of 1800. And she appears in the basement and then says, I think we need to settle this. Because there's, of course, skeptics in town. And one of them is the Miller family. And she says, we're going to lead a procession to the Miller family and, and prove this. And so for one mile in the woods, Nellie Butler's specter leads this procession of 40 people a mile through the woods and, uh, and to the Miller house and says, do you believe me now? And her final parting message to her widowed husband, George, is be kind to your wife because she won't be around very long. And within a year, Lydia died during childbirth. So the, the big question is, is it just a story? And uh, in the 1950s, a, a ghost author puts forth a book that says, uh, Machiasport, Maine, is the, the, the home of America's first documented ghost sighting and haunting. This predates uh, Bell Witch, if any of you are trying to rack your brain and remember the year. Uh, Bell Witch was uh, almost 20 years later. And so uh, this book said, basically what the book 
what this 1950 author did was he said, okay, York, Maine, we know where that is. And the book, Cummings' book, had said it was 200 miles south of where Lydia Blaisdell was from. So he just drew a line 200 miles, and that's Machiasport. You could, you could take that if that were a string, right? You could go, like, there's all kinds of places in Maine that are 200 miles from York. You could create an arc that is dozens of towns. But forever, everyone said, oh, it's Machiasport, it's Machiasport. This past summer, uh, I got in touch with a college professor from the University of Maine at Machias, uh, Marcus Labrizzi, if you know or, or know his book. And we started talking about this, and he said, no, it's not Machiasport, it's not Machias. It's, it's further south in Sullivan, Sullivan, Maine. Now, if you follow it to the inlets and stuff, that'll add up to 200 miles. It's not as the crow flies. And people are estimating anyway. So this past summer, we go to Sullivan because I want to know, is that house still there? Is ground zero still there? Can we stand where the ghost stood? And so we go to Sullivan, and we, we learned from talking to town historians, from genealogists, like this is where this story took place. One of the first things we found, quite easily, was George Butler's headstone. He's buried, so there's that. There's a place called Butler Point, where it's where the Butlers lived in the next town of Franklin. So we start finding all the right names and so on, all in this area of Sullivan. And now we're getting excited. And we're saying, okay, is that house still there? Like, oh God, it's been gone 150 years. You're not going to find a thing. But I want to be there so badly. It's just consuming. And so uh, Professor Labrisi, we, we get these old maps of the town, and we learn where the Blaisdell property would have been. And we make some phone calls, and pretty soon we learn who owns it today. And it turns out he's an attorney who owns the land and has a house there in Maine. And we have signed a legal agreement that says we will only publicly say that the property is in the woods, on private property, somewhere in Sullivan, Maine. And by the way, you'd never find it. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> Not without uh, a lot of help. So we said, can we come out there? Can we take pictures? Can we film it for posterity? Saying that we would only say that it's in the woods. And he said, yes, you can. You have one hour. So we went out there with all of our cameras. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.